Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Philippians, to the passage our friend Michelle read for us a moment ago. And as you're finding your way to Philippians chapter 1, let me voice a, a prayer for us before we dive in. God, would you give us grace and peace as we receive your word over these next few moments? Would you open our hearts to be responsive? And would you do a work within us that only you can do through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit? So God, we ask for this now in Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians chapter one. Now last week, we stepped into this new series under this theme called Indestructible Joy. And the very next day, my, my experience of an indestructible joy was challenged. It was, it was infringed upon because the very next day, I found myself uh, with my two-year-old son at the ER at Children's Hospital. Uh, he managed to play in a playpen at a restaurant that... Uh, I'll, I'll withhold its name, but they do specialize in chicken sandwiches, and they just opened up in Linwood not too long ago. Uh, and he's playing in this pen, and I'm hanging out in the corner talking to Wes and a few others, and next thing I know, I hear my boy crying, and, and I walk around the corner, and he's already left the pen, walking, making his way back to me, and every voice, every mom and dad in the space is just gasping. Uh, they're all gasping because my son looks like he stepped right out of a horror film. Uh, he's got this huge gash in his head, blood just steaming down, and I panic, rush, pick him up, grab him, throw some napkins on his head, and, and rush out to get him to the ER, and spent the afternoon getting him stitched up. He has seven stitches, uh, two kind of beneath the surface, five on top, so it was, it was a rough day, and it really threatened and challenged this whole idea of an indestructible joy. Uh, you think about a father's love for his son, and and I don't want to see my kid suffer. I don't want to see him in pain as, as much as I can. I want to prevent him from ever experiencing those types of things. But I know deep down and I know about the nature of the world that we live in, I can't, I can't, with, I can't protect him from suffering in this life. Suffering is inevitable. Hardships will befall every single person, not only in this room, but on this planet. It is unavoidable. It is inevitable. We will all suffer in various ways, shapes, and forms. And so the question then becomes, what effect will our sufferings have upon us? And really, suffering in our lives is a lot like the sun. When the sun shines upon the ground, it can either harden the clay or it can grow the garden. And when you think about your sufferings and you think about my sufferings, our sufferings, our sufferings will either harden us or they will grow us. They will harden us or they will humble us. And one of the most marvelous pictures of this work of the way in which God has worked in the Apostle Paul's life as we study the book of Philippians is you have a guy who suffered a lot. You have a guy who's suffering as he's writing these words. You have the story of the Apostle Paul, this man who suffered more than many. I'll just give you a little description of some of the sufferings he endured as he served Jesus in this world. He describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is what he writes. He says, you know, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That, that's what Jesus experience before he went to the cross. He was beaten in a way similar to Jesus, only he had it five times. Then he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety I feel for all the churches. Churches like the one in Philippi. A church that he's concerned with. A church that he loves. A church that he's bound together in a gospel partnership with and so Paul was a man who suffered more than many, but he was a man who, who you find when you read his story and when you see the expressions of joy in this little letter, you see one who wasn't hardened by his sufferings. He was humbled by his sufferings. He wasn't hardened in some type of self-centered obsession with his own situations. Instead, his sufferings humbled him to the point where he could empathize with other people who were hurting in the world. And he recognized where real joy is to be found, not so much in our life situations, but in the lifestyle that we give ourselves to, the perspective we adopt as we journey through the world that is. And so you have a man whose heart isn't hard as he's writing these words. You have a man who's writing with, with this humble orientation towards others, Someone who's not self-obsessed and self-focused, even though he's in a hard place, he still finds the resource to extend grace and peace and blessing through the words that he's writing to this church in Philippi. And so you step into verse 3, and really what you've got going on is this um, passage, as this book begins to unfold, he moves into verse 3 all the way to verse 11 to uh, write a prayer to this church saying, I, I thank my God every time I remember you. And his, he has this prayer that he's praying for the people with joy, saying, I thank my God, verse three, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Praying with joy. And he's praying for joy. He's wanting the Philippians to find their joy in the gospel and the advancement of it. Now, this is the first time joy is mentioned explicitly in this letter, and it will pop up no less than 14 more times. And, and that's the theme. That's the direction. Now, for some of us, when we think about joy and we think about this whole idea of, of happiness and and gladness, we, we tend to view joy as a life situation, that joy for us is dependent upon our circumstances so that if things are going well for us, we got joy. If things are going bad for us, we don't have joy. And some of that is tied to kind of how we use language and just kind of how we talk as we journey through this world. A synonym for the word joy is happiness. And nestled in our little English word happy is that word hap. And it's drawn from this other phrase that we get of, of happenstance. And so we have this tendency to think of joy and happiness as being tied to happenstance, as being tied to the various situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so we interpret joy that way, and all of a sudden, joy becomes pretty arbitrary. Joy and happiness is kind of like playing craps in the casino. You, your joy rises when you roll the dice and it lands on a seven, but your joy fades when you roll the dice and it lands on something else. Your happiness and your joy is dictated by every arbitrary role. And if you and I attach joy and happiness to life situation, if that's how we explain it, then we're not gonna understand what the book of Philippians is all about. We're not gonna understand how our sufferings can work 
humility within us that can produce a joy in Jesus that will transform us. We're not gonna get the message of this letter if we see joy as a life situation. And so what we wanna do is we wanna come around this and view it the way Paul seems to view joy in this letter. And for him, joy is a lifestyle. Joy has to do with the life he's living in relationship with Jesus as he's journeying through the world that is. For him, joy is drawn from what he's given his life to for the long haul. And because it has something to do with how he, what he's given his life for the long haul, he's not a victim of his immediate temporary circumstances. Instead, his joy is able to transcend those and to look far beyond those because joy for him is tied to what he's given his life to for the long haul. He understands that joy isn't attached to that which is temporary. Joy is attached to that which is eternal. This is why he can say what he says in verse 12. If you drop down to verse 12, he says something that's kind of mind-boggling. Sitting there in prison, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's what he's hitched his life to. The gospel and its advancement, his relationship with Jesus and his desire to introduce more and more people to Jesus, that's where his joy is being drawn for. So for him, joy is a lifestyle. And because of that, he's able to issue this prayer with joy. And notice what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I love the personal impulse of that phrase. He's not just thanking God in general. He's not just thanking God in some abstract sense. He's thanking his God. He's owning his relationship with God. He's the one who communes with God. He's one who worships God. He's one who walks with God. He's one who interacts with God on a personal level so that he's able to say, I thank my God. And if you are a follower of Jesus tonight, you can pray the exact same way. You too can talk to the creator of the universe through your faith in Jesus and say, I thank my God. You don't have to talk about God generically. You can talk about God personally. You can take ownership of your relationship with the creator of the universe. That's a phenomenal thing. So Paul is thanking his God. He's not just thanking some God. It's his God. And and then notice he says, in all my remembrance of you. Now, he's expressing this gratitude, although he's aware of some problems in the church of Philippi. The church of Philippi wasn't a church as dysfunctional as some of the other churches you meet in the New Testament. Philippi was a healthier church than, say, the church at Corinth. And if you've ever read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll discover Paul is addressing a church that had a lot of dysfunction. But Philippi was a little bit healthier than the church in Corinth. But that doesn't mean that the church at Philippi was perfect. The church at Philippi certainly had its issues. It had its conflicts. In fact, there were some ladies in the church that Paul will address in Philippians chapter 4 who weren't getting along with one another. And so he does try to mediate their relationship and encourage them to find peace in the Lord together and to reconcile their conflicts together. He does encourage that, but understand this. When Paul's writing this letter, he doesn't accentuate the negative. He amplifies the positive. What he's focusing on as he's writing to this church is God's grace in them and God's grace for them and God's grace through them. That's what he's emphasizing. 
Some of us get so bent out of shape when we talk about churches and if we ever step into a church and we find that the church isn't as perfect as we thought they should be, then we get all twisted and distorted thinking, well, if, if you are a church, if you're supposed to be followers of Jesus, doesn't that mean you're supposed to have everything together? You should have all your acts figured out and you, you, shouldn't, wall, you shouldn't have problems and conflict and dysfunction, but understand that every church has its level of dysfunction. A perfect church does not exist in this world. But if your approach and your perspective on the church isn't filtered through the grace of the gospel, then your, your approach to the church will be one of judgment and cynicism. And you will never be able to express gratitude to God for the churches that he is at work in all over the world. So Paul is expressing gratitude to God, even though uh, knowing that this church is a work in progress, that it's not a perfect church. And so he's showing them patience. He's showing them love. He's showing them grace. It's not unlike my daughter, Adeline. My daughter, Adeline, who's one years old, she's a work in progress. She is alive. She is fully human. But she's got a lot of growing up to do. Churches, when God births them in the world, we are alive, we are fully redeemed, but we have some work to do. We have some growing to do. Every time Adeline uh, sits down at the table to share a meal, she insists on feeding herself, and as a one-year-old, she doesn't do that very well. As a one-year-old, she's not very coordinated, so she misses her mouth with a spoon, and she'll put corn in her ear, and and she'll just kind of spread food all over the table. She'll drop it all over the floor. If you step into my kitchen after spaghetti night, it looks like a scene from some Quentin Tarantino film. I mean, it's just red everywhere. And this is her. She's, she's growing. So what would be an appropriate response to her in that moment? Is it for me to come in with a heavy hand and treat her gracelessly? Or would it be for me like a father to treat her with patience, recognizing that she's a work in progress? She's fully alive. She's fully human. But she has some growing up to do. Well, when it comes to the church, we are fully alive, we are fully redeemed, but we have some growing up to do. So don't be so hard on the church. The church is full of people who are redeemed by the grace of God. Therefore, we can always thank God for what he's doing in and through churches, even churches that are flawed or unhealthy or struggling or having a hard time finding their way. And so here you have Paul praying with joy, expressing gratitude to God for his grace in this church, even though it was imperfect. But he also expresses gratitude, praise with joy, because he has fond memories of the people that are attached to this church. He loves this church. This is why he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Perhaps he's thinking about Lydia, the woman who op- whose heart was open to receiving the gospel in Acts chapter 16, the first Christian in Philippi. Perhaps he's thinking about her and how she then, her life was changed and she began to use her business and her resources to help that church get started. Perhaps he's thinking about the slave girl that Jesus set free from demonic oppression and activity and was totally turned her life upside down. Perhaps he's thinking about the Philippian jailer who met Jesus because due to Paul's selfless example and testimony. Maybe he's thinking about the household of the Philippian jailer, all of his, his spouse and his children who we're told met Jesus as well. Maybe he's thinking about the names and faces of people that he loves and when he thinks about them, his heart swells. He has fond memories of those that he led to Jesus and he has fond memories of those that he is in relationship with as a result of Jesus. Now I can relate to some of Paul's affections for this church. I mean, we started the Hallows Church a little over five years ago. And in the process of planting this church, God has graced us with lots of 
different people coming in and through the church who met Jesus, who have grown in the, who have grown in the gospel, people whose God and his providence perhaps has moved on to other places and serving him in other contexts, people that I love dearly, people that I'm attached to and I have a bond for. And I thank my God and all my remembrance of these, of these friends and these families. I, I can't help but think of some. I'm not going to go through a name because I know I'll forget a name and I'll feel bad later. So I'm just going to say I, I, can, I can relate to what Paul is expressing in this passage. He loves the people he had the privilege of leading. And the bond that he shares with them is deep. And I want you to know, church, that I love the people I have the privilege of leading as a pastor here within the Hallows Church. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I'm for you. I want you to know that anything I say or do as a pastor, I hope I'm saying and doing with your best interests in mind. And so Paul, as he writes these words, he's expressing this gratitude, praying with joy. And part of his drive as he thinks about these names and faces, these relationships that he has, it kind of reminds us of where blessing comes from in the gospel. Sometimes we have a tendency, and there's some bad teaching out there that suggests that if you're really blessed by God, then that blessing will take a material form all the time. But the blessings of the gospel, the the gospel guarantees blessings that aren't necessarily material. Paul's story flies in the face of that understanding of gospel blessings. Many of your stories flies in the face of that understanding of the gospel. The gospel does not guarantee material blessings. But what's interesting about Paul's example is when he thanks God, he's thanking God for the relational blessings in his life. Not one time will you read Paul thanking God for things, but you will hear Paul time and time and time again all throughout the New Testament thanking God for people, thanking God for relationships, And so when it comes to the blessings of the gospel, don't overlook the people in your life. People, relationships, Jesus ultimately, that's ultimate gospel blessing. That's the type of blessing that the gospel guarantees every follower of Jesus. You meet Jesus, you get that relationship, that's a blessing. Then you fold into the family of Jesus, and that's a blessing. As you journey through life with other followers of Christ and your bond with them begins to grow. So gospel blessing takes the form of relational blessings. And Paul is recognizing this as he's praying this. He's expressing this with his gratitude to God. And then you get into verse 5 and you see a little bit more of this dynamic when he says, I'm praying this way. I'm praying with joy due to your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I love that word partnership. The word that is translated there is a familiar term to some of you. It's that word koinonia. We've talked about that term a lot in the past. Koinonia is translated partnership here. Later, it's translated partakers in verse seven. It's the word that's also translated as fellowship. And it's a beautiful word. He's saying, I'm all about this partnership I share with them in the gospel. And this partnership idea that he's getting after is kind of has two sides to it. On one hand, yes, it speaks to the friendship he shares with these, with these people. There is friendship involved in our gospel partnership. There is a relationship that we share with each other. So when you step into relationship with Jesus and you begin to draw your joy from the gospel and the advancement of the gospel, you find yourself in partnership with other disciples and with that comes friendships. And friendships is one of the deepest need that we have as human beings. We were created by a relational God. We were designed for relationships and we long for relationships 
when relationships are lacking in our lives, we feel that, don't we? Nobody likes to be lonely. Nobody likes to feel like they're on their own in this world. We long for friendships. But the problem is we don't really know how to make good friendships even in the church. Because some of us have an understanding that friendship uh, is the result of just being close in proximity to another human being. If that were true, then Seattle would be the most friendly city in the universe. We are densely packed in. We, are, we have close proximity with all types of people, but not a lot of friendships. You see, friendship isn't the result of proximity, even in the church. You can step into a church and still feel lonely. You can step into a church and sit next next to other people every Sunday. You can even walk into a missional community and be in close in proximity to other believers and yet still be lonely, still lack friendship. Why? Well, because friendship isn't based on proximity. Friendship is based on you opening your life up and sharing your life with another person. If you never open yourself up to another person, if you never engage in a meaningful conversation, you will lack friendships. If you never love and serve another human being and build friendships and those types of shared experiences, then you may lack friendships and it's possible to be in a church even this size and still feel lonely. My prayer is that loneliness would be abolished in our church, that every disciple of Jesus who wants to follow Christ in this community would step into deep and meaningful partnerships, deep and meaningful fellowships where we are able to open ourselves up and be known and step into relationships where we know others. That's what we want. That's the blessing we have in the gospel. There is joy to be drawn from these partnerships, from this friendships. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way when he said, you know, a gospel partnership or a friendship, it, it kind of happens that moment. You're in a conversation with another person, you learn something, and you say, what, you too? That, that's true of you too? And when you get that affinity, you get that commonality, that's when a friendship begins to blossom. That's when a bond begins to form And what do we have as followers of Jesus except for the greatest what you too in all of the universe? What? You love Jesus too? What? You're not a perfect person either? What? You're saved by grace too? We have the greatest you too in the universe. Therefore, we should not be lacking in friendships in the local church. So what I'm hoping happens is that we would wake up and recognize this what you too and we all find ourselves with that shared affinity, that shared commonality in Christ, recognizing that we're drawing our life and our joy from him and his gospel and we're doing that together. But there are a few things that might stand in the way. There are three obstacles to forming those types of friendships in the local church, one of which is called sensationalism. There are some people who who don't stick with the church long enough to form those types of bonds because they they have a sensationalistic approach to the local church, meaning they step into a church and the, the gathering's not as flashy as they hope, the show's not as polished as they desire, and so they want this sensational experience in the church rather than forging friendships in Christ. And so what happens is they, they quickly bail. They don't find Christian community scintillating enough to participate in it. But understand that the Christian life and this partnership in the gospel that we share, it's not about shock and awe. It's about lowly acts of service and love. It's about Paul saying what he says later in Philippians chapter two when he says, consider other people more significant than yourself. Love the other person. Don't, 
Don't be driven by sensationalism in your approach to any church. Another obstacle is what we might call mysticism. And this is this tendency we have to reduce the Christian life to a series of quiet times where it's all about me and Jesus. And we forget that Jesus, when he saved us, he didn't just save us, he saved others too. And when Jesus redeemed us, he didn't redeem us simply as individuals, but to fasten us into a community. And so we don't want to reduce the Christian life and miss out on gospel partnerships by living a Lone Ranger approach to this thing. Well, I've got the internet. I can listen to sermons there or I can pop in a podcast and do that. I don't really have to interact with flesh and blood people. I don't really have to step into diversity in a local church. I really don't have to step into relationships with people who I might not share external things in common. You take that mentality and you, you cut yourself off from one of the deepest joys to be found in the gospel. And that is this idea of partnership. So we want to dispel this idea of a mystical approach to Christianity that says it's about me and Jesus. We want to recognize that Christianity is about we and Jesus. It's always been about we and Jesus. It's never been about any me and Jesus. It's always been we and Jesus. We're in this thing together. We have a partnership in Christ, and so we don't want mysticism to hinder our our experience of gospel partnership. And then the third one, perhaps this is the, the hardest one to shake, but it's this idea of idealism. Idealism can prohibit deep friendships, deep gospel partnerships in our lives because we step into a church and we bring certain expectations to the table, and if those expectations aren't met, we bail. And so we're holding people to standards that are super high, higher than God himself sometimes. And if they can't reach it, then I'm out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called Life Together. And in it, he explains how, what a blessing gospel partnerships can be and what they should be in the life of the local church. And he talks about this idea of ideal, idealism. And this is what he says. He says, you know, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself, they become destroyers of that community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And then he goes on to say, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. He would go on to say, we need to learn to live together in the forgiveness of our sins so that we can forgive one another every day from the bottom of our hearts. But if you're an idealist in your search for Christian community, if you're an idealist in your approach to gospel partnerships, you'll never get there because ideals are rarely ever realized in the world that is. So this idea of partnership that Paul is celebrating and praying for in this moment, it refers to one hand friendship, but there's one other side of that that we can't miss and that's the idea of mission. This partnership in the gospel that he shares with the church in Philippi is in service to the gospel. It's in the advancement of the gospel. This is what his life is all about and this is what he's hoping the Philippian church will be about. Mission, that we have a shared opportunity to make much of Jesus in the world that is. But here's the temptation. The temptation in any local church today is to view the people who come through those doors on a Sunday who, who identify as Christians. I'm not talking about people who aren't trusting in the gospel, but those who are identifying themselves as followers of Jesus. Here's the temptation. The temptation is to treat them as customers rather than coworkers. And once we begin to treat Christians as customers, we will begin compromising all types of things in the church because what's the saying? The customer is always right. And we will start sacrificing core convictions to get more people 
into this community. We will start making compromises on areas where that would betray gospel life and gospel joy, treating Christians as customers rather than dignifying them with the privilege of partnership. When Paul refers to this partnership in the gospel, he's reminding the Philippians, look, you're, you're not a customer of Christianity. You're not a customer of the church. You don't engage the church to be entertained. You engage the church to be edified and empowered to participate in what God is doing in the world. So our partnership, our, we are co-laborers, co-workers in Christ. This is what we're going for together. So I hope and I pray that you would check any temptation you feel to step into a church as a customer. And then you would recognize the joy and the dignity that comes from being a co-laborer, a co-worker, a partner in the gospel who has a role to play. Each and every one of you have a role to play in what Jesus is doing in this city. And I would love for you to play that role in our church, in the life of the Hallows Church. I would love to see you stepping into your leadership, stepping into your giftedness, stepping into your passion so that you can recognize the joy of gospel partnership. So Paul is praying in this direction and he emphasizes this partnership in the gospel. Then he moves on in verse 6. And he starts talking about the confidence that he has in the gospel. He says in verse six, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. And here's the evidence, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The Philippians sent a guy by the name of Epaphroditus to Paul to minister to him and to see what his needs were to express their love for him. And he says, that's evidence of grace in your life. Then he goes on in verse eight, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. This is incredible confidence that he's voicing. There is clear evidence that God has been at work in the church at Philippi and in light of the evidence of grace in them, he's able to say with confidence, God is going to complete the work that he has started in you. God is going to bring it to completion. And some of you just need to rest in that reality tonight. Because some of you, God has started a work and you're wondering whether or not he's going to bring it to completion. Some of you are being even tempted to take over. Okay, God started this work, but I really need to do something. I need to exert something. I need to go in some direction in order to complete this work because I feel like joy is lacking in me. I feel like eternity is at stake because not much is blooming. I need to make something happen. And some of you just need to sit back and rest in the reality that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. God does not start a work that he does not intend to finish. God is not a bad prom date. Let me explain. I had the worst prom date ever. My senior year in high school, I asked this girl to go to prom with me and about a week before this big dance, we, we had planned to go together for about six months and a week before she starts dating this other guy. So I still have to pay for everything and take her to prom, but she's dating this other dude. I do because I'm a nice guy and so I pay, I get her into the prom, but not five minutes after it, she's off with this other guy dancing with him. I'm left alone on the dance floor wondering, well, what? What am I supposed to be doing? 
Well, sometimes we take that image and we project it upon Jesus and we think, okay, Jesus did enough to bring us into the kingdom of God. He's done enough to bring us into eternal life. He's done enough to get this work of salvation started, but then he's bailed on us to go do other things and to occupy himself with other people. And we're just on our own trying to complete this work of salvation. We're on our own trying to do everything in our own strength and power to bring, to cross the finish line one day. And and I assure you, Jesus is not a bad prom date. Jesus not only brings us into the dance, he is with us for every song. You may stumble and bumble out there on the dance floor in an uncoordinated fashion, but Jesus is still with you and he's not ashamed of you. This is the reality of the work that he has started and it's the reality of the work that he will bring to completion. He is good. And Paul is confident in this. He's confident that God is faithful and that God will do the things that he has said he will do. One of the interesting things about that expression in verse six is that I think it's instructive that you and I recognize that Paul is placing his confidence in God and not necessarily in the Philippians. You might expect, I believe in you Philippians, I believe you're gonna cross the finish line, I believe you're gonna persevere in your faith, but understand, Paul doesn't put his faith in the Philippians, he puts his faith in God's work in their lives. And that's instructive for us because we have a tendency to put all of our faith in other people and then we get let down. Or we put all our faith in another person and we get disappointed, we get discouraged, we get tied to a temporary moment or a temporary decision or a season of life that is very discouraging and hard and wonder if this is gonna be our forever. And it may be your perception of forever if you're only putting your faith in a person and not putting your faith in the God of that person. I got a phone call yesterday as a guy was preparing to preach in this city and he was having a hard time getting the message together and he was wondering if he could really pull it off and he, he felt like God wasn't really with him in the preparation process and he's wondering, I, I don't know, do you, do you have somebody you can send to preach in my stead? And he was asking my advice and I responded this way. I responded saying, no, I don't have anybody to send your way. I believe in Christ in you. It'll all come together. I trust Christ in you. I didn't tell him that I trusted him because honestly, I don't. I'll probably never tell any of you I trust in you because honestly, I don't. But I do trust in Christ in you. I do believe in God's grace in your life. I do believe in God's grace to bring this work of salvation to completion. I I do trust Christ in you. And my hope as we journey together into the future that you don't put your trust in me. Don't put your faith in me. My hope is that you will put your faith and your trust in Christ in me. I hope there's evidence of grace in my life that you can say, okay, God's at work in that guy and and he may have messed up this week, but I'm gonna be patient with him. He's a work in progress just like me. So you have this idea of completion, this putting our faith in God's grace at work in the life of any church And we want to consider that as the Hallows Church. And then he goes on in verse 9 to express his prayer. And he gets real specific about what he's praying for them. And I find it just incredibly encouraging. This is what he says in verse 9. After identifying his confidence is in God, his confidence is in this this gospel of grace. And then he says in verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is he praying for? He's praying that they would make progress. He's praying that they would get more coordinated. 
He's praying that they would mature. He's praying that they would grow. He's praying that they would advance in their faith, advance in their maturity. He's praying for the progress of the gospel in their lives. And if you want to know how can you pray for the Hallows Church, pray for the progress of the gospel in our lives. And the progress of the gospel takes on a few forms. He, he talks about love abounding more and more. But notice what he says. He qualifies his prayer for love, doesn't he? He anchors love. He puts some parameters on this appeal to love. In other words, love for Paul wasn't just some cold abstraction. Love for Paul wasn't some warm feeling or sentiment. For Paul, love is qualified by knowledge and discernment. Love is qualified by truth and application. And that's incredibly instructive for us living in a world where so many voices are trying to define love for us. So many voices are trying to give us pictures of what love looks like in every situation, in every moment, coming from every social media outlet on the planet, coming from every news outlet, every magazine. Love for Paul is anchored in knowledge. It's anchored in truth. Love for Paul comes with discernment. Love for Paul has this ability of saying, okay, that's affirmable, that's deplorable. Love has this ability for Paul to make judgments about what is honoring to Jesus and what isn't honoring to Jesus, what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. That's love for Paul. He's not just praying for this airy, sentimental love. He's praying for their love to abound in knowledge and with all discernment. So how do you get that kind of love? Well, you've got to understand how interdependent these three things are. Love without knowledge is naive. Love without discernment is easily, is easily impressed upon and manipulated. Love on its own is naive, but on the flip side, knowledge without love is arrogance, right? Knowledge without love just makes you a big-headed Christian. Nobody wants a big-headed Christian. Knowledge without love is arrogance. But then you think about discernment. What is discernment without love? Or what is discernment without knowledge? Well, discernment without love or knowledge is cynicism. Discernment without love or knowledge is a critical spirit. Discernment without love or knowledge, a commitment to truth, is joyless. So what is Paul praying for? He's saying, I want your love to be qualified by truth with knowledge in all discernment. I want you to learn how to process the world around you so that you can discern and make choices about what is excellent, what is right, what is pure and blameless. And I want you to do this all the way up until the day of Christ so that the fruit of righteousness may bloom in you. So you have this interdependent dynamic, love, knowledge, discernment. If we're gonna progress in the gospel, we have to progress in all three of these areas. If we're gonna grow as a church, we need love, knowledge, and discernment. How do you get that? But by giving yourself to the study of the scriptures. The study of the scriptures is the only real common ground we have in Jesus. Everything we know about Jesus comes from the Bible. Everything we trust about Jesus, we learn from the scriptures. So we grow in our knowledge by studying the Bible every week together. And then we grow in our discernment by learning how to apply that which we are learning in ways that show love to the world around us. And we recognize in humility that sometimes love looks like saying, that's wrong. And sometimes love looks like saying, that's awesome. But there's a discerning factor. There's a discerning feature to showing love to the watching world and being a people who are living for the advancement of the gospel, wanting love and knowledge and discernment to intertwine in our heart and to intertwine into the 
fabric of our church. And I would say that love, knowledge, and discernment is responsible for your salvation. Love, knowledge, and discernment is responsible for you being redeemed by Jesus. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his own son, Jesus, into the world. We know that God loved us enough to send Jesus to do something specific for us. But love for Jesus wasn't just this airy, sentimental, emotional deal where he was affirming everything. Love for Jesus looked like the communication of that which was true, that which was honorable, that which was right. So you hear Jesus teaching all kinds of things in the gospel. You see Jesus living according to a truth that says, you know, God is holy and people are not. Jesus living in light of a God who is just in a world that is unjust. You see Jesus living in the light of the truth of who God is in contrast with the world that is, recognizing that there's a big difference between a fallen world and a holy God. And he's living in light of this truth. That's why he says all the things that he does. That's why he does all the things that he does as he's journeying through Galilee and Jerusalem, accomplishing his mission in love and truth. But then what do you find in Jesus in that moment where he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane just before going to the cross? You find him exercising discernment. You find him discerning that which is excellent, that which is pure, that which is blameless as he's praying about the will of the Father only to draw the conclusion because he loves us and because he knows that we are separated from God apart from salvation, apart from what he could do on the cross, he would discern that about the will of the Father and he would say, okay, I'll drink the cup. And he got up and he resolved to turn himself over to the officials only later to be crucified upon a cross. And, and we find that in Jesus, our salvation is the fruit of love being anchored in his knowledge of truth, exercised with discernment and extended to us in his submission and in his sacrifice so that you and I can find joy, find life, find hope in him so that our life and our joy would not be determined by life situations that are temporary, but that our joy would be fixed in a lifestyle that is centered on his love for us, on his truth to us, and his empowering us to discern that which is excellent, that which is pure, that which is right, until the end of days. We want our lives to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through this Jesus, through faith in this Jesus. And Paul's very clear on that. And then he ends this prayer with a note of ultimate hope and ultimate desire where he says, I want all of these things to the glory and the praise of God. Saying it's not just about what you do as you live your life through this world, it's why you do it. Joy is found when you begin to Live for the glory and the praise of God because when you give yourself to that purpose, to that ultimate end, you're giving yourself to a purpose and an end that is irrevocable, that is indestructible. And if that's an indestructible purpose, the joy that you find in that purpose too is indestructible. So we want to live for the glory and the praise of God. We want to grow in all of these ways for the glory and the praise of God. Let's pray. Give us grace, Father to respond to the word as you were working it within our hearts and in our lives. Would you give us grace to make our prayers with joy, expressing our gratitude to you for the relational blessings in our lives. God, would you give us grace to see the confidence that we can have in the gospel that you are faithful to bring all your activity to completion in our lives. God, would you give us grace to progress in the gospel and to grow 
in the gospel as we give ourselves to gospel partnership, to friendship and mission. God, would you make us a healthy people? God, would you make us a joyful people? God, would you give us grace to find joy as our lifestyle, centering everything upon what your son lived for, what your son died for, and what your son rose from the grave for. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.